it was confusing at first from a business perspective because nobody owned the internet. Because you could just put a website up, you could be on the internet. But to get on the internet, you still had to pay somebody because somebody had to pay for the infrastructure to put a pipe and connect it to the internet. You had to use your modem, you had to dial up from your computer and connect that computer to uh, a server somewhere. And for that piece, which that's the internet server provider, right? That's the internet ISP piece, you ended up paying. And in fact, some of those same companies like CompuServe and Prodigy started recognizing that maybe they should offer a connection to the internet. And then ISPs independently sprung up like Earthlink and Mindspring. And, and literally back in those days, there were probably thousands of ISPs that were just local to a city, you know, some small city. That was where we started looking at this thing and saying, let me get this. So nobody owns the internet. It's free, but I still have to pay somebody to get on. And we started thinking that's kind of like putting a toll booth on the freeway on-ramp and saying, hey, if you want to get on this on-ramp, you got to pay me five bucks. I don't own the freeway, but you still got to pay me five bucks to get on. So how can we change that? And that's where we started thinking about it and thought, well, it should be like TV and radio. I mean, I'm listening to FM radio or I'm not paying for that. It's being paid for by advertising. And that was the genesis of the idea for Net Zero. Net Zero. It was a revolutionary idea for a business in its day. It was the company that gave 100% free access to the internet. Just install their software and you're online and surfing the web. No more expensive dial-up fees to AOL or Earthlink or any other costly ISP. But as we all remember from high school econ class, there's really no such thing as a free lunch. Or in this case, there's no such thing as free when it comes to the internet. If you're not paying for something online, you're not the customer, you're the product. In fact, that's what all of us are to Google and Facebook and the other internet behemoths providing us with the quote unquote free services we use every day. We're their product because they're selling us and our data to advertisers. But Facebook and Google didn't invent that strategy. Heck, it was a successful strategy well before the web existed, back with radio and broadcast television. And people figured out how to leverage that same strategy on the web surprisingly early. But the company that truly elevated the model was Net Zero. And the person you heard describe the thought process that led to it was Net Zero's founder and first CEO, Ron Burr. Are you ready to hear the story? Let's get dialed in. Hello and welcome to Webmasters. This is the podcast where we explore entrepreneurship and what it takes to build successful businesses. We do it by talking with the innovators who first commercialized the World Wide Web. My name is Aaron Dinan, and I'm your host. I teach innovation and entrepreneurship at Duke University, and I research internet history. On this episode, I want to explore an important topic that's been at the center of debates about the best way to commercialize the web for a long time, It's a debate about the trade-offs between subscription pricing versus free models supported by advertising. But since this podcast is clearly using an ad-supported model, before we can get to our episode, I've got to take a minute to tell you about our sponsor. Webmasters couldn't exist without the generous support of Latona's. Latona's is a boutique mergers and acquisitions broker that helps people buy and sell their cash flow positive internet businesses. Those can be ad supported businesses like content websites and blogs, 
or they can be subscription services, e-commerce stores, Amazon FBAs, domain portfolios, and any other type of online work from anywhere internet business. If you've got a profitable internet business you're thinking of selling, be sure to contact the team at Latona's so they can talk to you about how to get the best price. And if you're thinking of buying an already profitable internet business, check out the Latona's website where you can search their listings filled with ready to buy businesses waiting for a new owner just like you. That website is of course latonas.com, L-A-T-O-N-A-S.com. Lots of media technologies over the centuries have relied on advertising to generate huge portions of their revenues, newspapers, magazines, television, and radio, to name just a few. But when the web relies on advertising, the relationship between consumer and advertiser is a bit different because, as we all know, the internet allows for an unprecedented level of individual tracking. This ability to track and target consumers can make web advertising extremely effective but it also leads to important questions about privacy. Do we as users of the internet have a right to expect our online actions to remain private? Or do the companies that allow us to access and explore the web, especially the ones that provide those services for free, have a right to track and profit off our private activities? I'll tell you right now, I don't have the definitive answer to that question, but that doesn't mean it's not worth exploring. And to help us do that, I'm going to turn to a conversation I had with Ron Burr. In the late 90s, Ron founded a company called Net Zero. It gave people free dial-up internet access. And I'll let Ron explain the trade-off people made for their free internet. For your audience that doesn't know how it worked, you would start the software application on your computer. It would give you a choice of a local phone number you could connect to, you would connect. And then you would be online and a little window would pop up on your desktop. And in that window, uh, we would display advertising. And that would roll, rotate initially every 30 seconds. We would rotate through a new ad. So just like a banner ad that you see today. It was very simple. But it stayed ever present on the desktop. And that was the value exchange. Is you got in on the internet for free and you watched our advertising. In the process of building that service, Ron and his team pioneered and even patented a lot of today's online marketing strategies that rely so heavily on private user data. As you can imagine, he's got some interesting thoughts about internet privacy. We'll get to those, but first let's talk about access. After all, NetZero was built to give people free access to the internet. After talking with Ron, it seems clear his early experiences with computers are a big part of why he built NetZero. When Ron was growing up, computers themselves were still a precious commodity that only a few people could afford to access. As a kid, um, we had a family friend who worked for digital research. So this is back in the dark ages of computing, right in the NASA moon landing time period. So this is you know when I was very young. But he had something in his home uh, he lives up in Danville, California, right, Bay Area. And uh, he had a terminal at his house, which was very unique in those days, right? Computers were something that you went to the office to, to use to the university. And um, he had an acoustic modem. When we were there one summer, he said, hey, I've got this really cool game called Adventure. You have to try this. <laughs> and it was the old adventure that you typed in, like, uh, it would say, oh, there's a dwarf standing in front of you. What do you want to do? And you'd say, oh, pick up knife or, you know run away or whatever, whatever it might be. So, I mean, you know, that was just, I thought that was the coolest thing ever. And I really kind of hooked me on computers at that point. 
digital research the company Ron mentioned was kind of like the first Microsoft. By that I mean it was the first major software company for what were then called microcomputers. And to have had a neighbor with a computer terminal in his home would have been unique to say the least. As you heard Ron mention, his access to that computer ultimately set him on his career trajectory. The same would have been true for the internet a couple decades later. Yes, people were starting to get internet access at home, but access to it was being guarded by expensive internet service providers, ISPs, who were charging onerous fees for entry. You heard Ron describe his perspective on that at the top of this episode. Back in those days, there were probably thousands of ISPs that were just local to a city, you know, some small city. That was where we started looking at this thing and saying, let me get this. So nobody owns the internet. It's free, but I still have to pay somebody to get on. And we started thinking that's kind of like putting a toll booth on the freeway on-ramp and say, hey, if you want to get on this on-ramp, you got to pay me five bucks. I don't own the freeway, but you still got to pay me five bucks to get on. So how can we change that? The model Ron and his partners turned to was the same model they were seeing with things like broadcast television and radio. Rather than charging users for access to the internet, something that seemed like it should be free and available to anyone, what if they gave users free access and paid for that access with advertising? Sounds simple, right? But giving away internet access wasn't going to be cheap, and they were going to need lots of users before advertising could become a viable monetization strategy. How are they going to make it work? It was a big idea. So we sat down and we said, okay, this is a really, really big idea. How do we even scope this to see if we should do this? And we came up with a list of like 15 things that we should look at, you know, really understand the network topology and what the what the costs would be to build an ISP so we could, you know, we could figure all that out. And then the next side of it was, okay, we don't know anything about advertising. We're engineers. So what do we need to understand about how the advertising world works? It sounds like you're saying you built what was basically an advertising product without knowing anything about advertising. How'd you figure out how to do that? We went and talked to agencies that were in the advertising industry, uh, specifically agencies that had a focus on local advertising, because one of the things we thought was really powerful was knowing where the customer was when they called in, right? Because they're calling a local phone number. That's how the modems worked. And that's how you connected to the internet in those days. And so by that local number, I knew that you were in Pasadena, California, or Nashville, Tennessee, or wherever you were. So it was a very powerful opportunity to display local advertising to you. So anyway, so we, so here we are. We we figure we got to figure these things out and understand whether or not this is even viable and how much it would cost. And we came to the conclusion that yeah, we could do this. And our initial thought was, well, we can do it on a regional basis. We'll start just the way a lot of ISPs were built in those days, city by city. We'll start in Los Angeles and we'll move to the Bay Area and we'll go to New York and we'll we'll build it up that way. It doesn't seem like that model would have scaled very well. Did you get any traction with it? I was out trying to raise venture capital. I had never raised venture capital before. So I think the we went through something like 36 no's <laughs> before we finally got to a yes. <laughs> so the answer is that clearly nobody thought it would work on a regional level. How'd you eventually get to your yes? What changed? What did you start pitching differently? Ultimately, we got introduced to a gentleman by the name of Bill Gross, who was the founder of Idealab, another big player in the early internet days. 
Note that Ron isn't kidding when he's describing Bill Gross as a big player in the early internet. Bill and Idealab have been involved in over 150 companies, including big businesses of the young web such as Overture, Tickets.com, eToys, and CitySearch. When we showed it to Bill, he was just in love with the whole concept. Bill looked at it, and I don't forget in the first meeting, he, he was enthralled with it. He called me up then that evening and said, hey, let's have dinner tomorrow. We go out to dinner, and he's like, he says, I don't understand why we can't just launch this thing immediately. It works. I said, well, you know, Bill, this is a prototype. We, we can't go to market with this right now. We're going to do this regional launch. He said, no, we can't do a regional launch. We have to go national. He says, you have to get, first of all, the internet is global. There's no such thing as regional, and you need to have a massive presence to attract the advertising dollars. And he was right. So we switched strategies. And we went to this national launch strategy right out of the gate. And that was critical toward attracting ad dollars. So how were you able to go from a regional strategy to a national strategy? I mean, that couldn't have been an easy switch, right? We were thinking initially of this kind of local concept. Oh, we're going to go in a local market. We were thinking just the cost to build infrastructure. But it took us a year from the time we had the concept until the time we got our first capital raise. And during that year, it was 96, 97. Technology was changing quickly, and companies were coming out with new network devices that allowed you to connect to the internet. And one of the things that changed dramatically was these things called super pops. And what a super pop was was basically a big piece of iron that could sit in a major metro area, and it could field thousands of phone calls. So instead of having to go into every major metropolitan area that you wanted to provide service in and build physical space and install servers and install modems, right? You could pick five strategic locations across the country and put these super pops in, and then you could actually offer local access to large markets around that. That was far less capital intensive than having to go out and build that infrastructure market by market. Okay. So you launched this new free ISP across the entire United States. Then what happens? How does it grow? Yeah, so the viral spread was fairly amazing. We launched the service. We got a big splash in the Los Angeles Times. That got picked up and syndicated you know, through AP. It got picked up on papers all across the country. Then we started getting radio. And we had so much free press. We didn't spend any money on advertising for users for the first three years. We were spending all our money advertising to get advertisers, as you point out, our customer, but we really didn't spend any money to get customers until, let's see, until about 99 was when we did our first real ad campaigns for users. We did some billboards, we did some radio, then we moved into TV, we did a lot of big stuff then, and we went public in 2000, so it was you know, a lot of great stuff. We did a deal with Compact Computer, which was a huge distribution deal for us. So another great way to acquire customers. And so we were prepackaged on all the compacts that were sold at that time, which was precursor to HP for those of you who don't remember Compaq. <laughs> oh, I remember Compaq. It was my first computer. <laughs> um, what about competitors? What did AOL and other services think of this upstart company basically giving away their product for free? Yeah, yeah. The competition, of course, at first they just shoved us off as kind of an irrelevant threat because they were America Online and they were the biggest player on the block and we weren't really going to do anything in their book. But I think when they started to take notice is we had a couple of different approaches. First of all, we, we recognized that by being free, there was probably this inherent suspicion that the service must suck. We needed to do a good job of providing a quality experience, right? So we actually got rated in the top three in terms of customer support, our online customer support portal. 
and uh, we focused heavily on connectivity. And we actually got patents around this and the way we tracked the connection experience. Because back in those days, again, you got to remember, each it wasn't like today. The infrastructure wasn't solid. So you could dial up, get a bad connection. Your speed would be slow. Your connection might get dropped. So we monitored and tracked all of that, and we would cut out numbers that didn't work. And that's how we managed our suppliers, companies like Level 3 and big backbone providers vying for our business. So ultimately, um, that was uh, a key toward getting more and more success in the in the space. But you know, it was a big growing pie, so we didn't have to disrupt AOL in order for us to grow. It was just a massive growth opportunity. I mean, it must have been wildly massive because you went public in what, 1999, I think I read, and you started this idea in 96 or 97. That's really fast from idea to IPO in like two or three years. What was that experience like? I'll tell you, it becomes surreal at some point. I can remember we were on the roadshow to go public, the IPO roadshow, and that's just for people who aren't familiar with it, this is where you... Your investment bank takes you around. They set up all these appointments and you go talk to all these institutional investors, right? Fidelity and Janus funds and all these, everybody who buys into today would be you know, hedge funds, all these different big investors. And it's like a grueling two-week process of four or five meetings a day and you're you're flying over the place. So it's really, it sounds really cool. It's very glamorous. And a part of it, it is, right? I mean, you're going and talking to some really powerful, influential people and you're trying to pitch your business now differently than you were to the VCs. Now you're pitching it to these public institutional investors. But I just remember that was a goal, right? That was a dream. Like I wanted to get that. I wanted to do that. And after the two weeks and we were sitting in Goldman Sachs trading floor and the stock was about to trade, I just had this massive migraine. (laughs) I hadn't slept. I was not feeling well. And um, I thought, God, how disappointing. I mean, this should be like one of the most exciting days of my life. And all I want to do is go to sleep, you know. So it's not always what you think it's going to be. But uh, certainly, I will say overall, it was a fantastic experience. I wouldn't trade it for anything. And you went public as the president and CTO, right? Rather than being the CEO, I mean. Uh, If you don't mind me asking, did you get pushed out of the CEO role by investors or was it a voluntary choice? So I was really upfront early on with the investors that at some point I would see a need to replace myself. And as we started getting close to going public, it was just a natural conversation. We would have to start to have board meetings. That's pretty unusual. I haven't met many CEOs who've had the self-doubt or maybe I guess I should say the self-confidence to fire themselves. How'd you make that decision? It was hard for sure, because your ego is telling you something over here. You've got the, the angel on this shoulder and the devil on this shoulder, right? <laughs> They're both telling you different things. And other people are coming to you and saying, Ron, you don't need to do this. You're doing great. You Look how well you've done. You don't need to do this. You know, then you look back and you second guess, should I have done that? Did I need to do that? But the reality is I measure it by the success and that we were successful. So I say it was the right decision. Is that a strategy you think more founding CEOs should follow? I can't speak for everybody. I just know for myself that I had a a real clarity at the time that this was a unique opportunity and that you may only get one of these kinds of opportunities once in your life. And so don't screw it up. And so don't let your ego get in the way. And that was a, a mindset I had really from the beginning. So it wasn't like I had to suck it up and, and make a change. It was, it was something with like, no, I knew at some point that was probably going to happen because I wanted to get public and I had never been a public CEO and didn't have the background for it. And we needed somebody like that on the team. 
And to be fair, it's definitely hard to argue with that choice considering the results, going from idea to IPO in less than three years. But of course, this was the late 90s, a lot of companies were making similar leaps, and it was all going to crash down pretty soon. We went public in 99, and going through the crash was very gut-wrenching, I guess. I think our stock was at one point $50 a share, which had our market cap at like $4 billion. And then its low point, it was, I think, at $0.15. Cents. You go down to, I don't remember what the market cap was there, $125 million or something. I mean, it was terrible. So, you know, and then the NASDAQ, if you trade for more than 30 days under a dollar, you can get delisted. It was just constant battle to try to just stay listed. And uh, it was a challenging time. And of course, everybody thought internet advertising is not going to make it. And boy, you're giving away this stuff for free. You're never going to make it. But the reality is we ran a good business and we had raised our IPO. We had uh, managed to do a uh, follow-on financing through private means with Qualcomm, who did a big investment in us. So we had a big war chest of capital. And we were able to weather the storm. And in fact, we took advantage of it because so many companies were distressed. We went through an acquisition spree of 14 different companies. The biggest one being we merged with probably, I guess, one of our bigger rivals at the time, which was a company called Juno. When we did that, we created a new holding company called United Online. And United Online became the parent of the Net Zero brand and the Juno brand and a whole bunch of other brands we bought over the years. The holding company, United Online, managed to stick around until 2016 when it was acquired by a private equity firm. And surprisingly, net zero still exists. According to Ron, last he heard around 2018, it still had roughly 5 million accounts. But according to Ron, the real measure of net zero's impact isn't necessarily the user base. There's a lot of focus that's always put on the free internet access, which was the compelling component that drove the customer base. But we put a lot of effort into developing an advertising product that was better than what was available traditionally on on the internet. So two of the big differentiators, the one I mentioned was this concept of local targeting. So I could target an ad specifically to a geographic region. And the second one was what we called URL targeting, basically clickstream, if you will. So if you're on a Ford Motor Company site, you could display a Chevy ad, right? You couldn't do this before. I know for people who who didn't grow up without the internet, they don't understand this, but you could not do something like that pre-internet. And so it was very revolutionary. We got a patent on it, and that patent's actually cited in so many future patents, including some of Google's patents. It was a real revolutionary concept. And we grew revenue from $4.5 million the first year, and five years later, we did $550 million. It was a massive scale of revenue growth. Yeah, I'll say. Four and a half million to 550 million in revenue in five years? That's pretty incredible. And all that revenue was coming from advertising? Was it just the one box with rotating ad banners or were you monetizing in other ways too? What we did early on was there were companies like Comscore and others and Nielsen Net Ratings who were trying to aggregate what they did in traditional media into the internet. And so we were a big source of data for them. So we would we would actually absolutely sell that clickstream data as another source of revenue. But we also could see, to your point, you know where the most traffic sites were, and of course uh, it was no surprise what the most traffic sites were. They're still the most traffic sites today, which is porn. So, <laughs> but uh, there were also a lot of other interesting things you could see, and and you could gauge kind of where our user was going compared to what was being published on the web, and. They were generally pretty close, but I think the rankings would vary, you know, four or five positions here or there. 
you had kind of the bird's eye seat on kind of what people were doing and where they were going. And we could see, for example, the rise of Google coming out of nowhere, right? Yahoo being the dominant search engine. And then Google was just, you know, like everybody else, they started as a startup, kind of come out of nowhere. That's actually really interesting. It must have been fascinating to have all that data. So it sounds like you weren't just monetizing with ads. It sounds like you were selling that data too. Is that correct? The two biggest streams were the what we called the banner window, which was the primary ad window, and the clickstream data that we would sell in mass, you know, anonymized to, like I said, Comscore and those kinds of companies. We also found ways to sell what was called the landing page. So when you connected, you initially landed on a homepage. That became very valuable real estate. So we could charge for that. We could throw up an ad when you were connecting and an ad when you were leaving. So we found all kinds of creative ways to put new advertising products out there. And ultimately, here's another interesting thing about the business model. So when I was originally pitching it, it's not necessarily intuitive from an investor perspective. You're like, wait a second, you're telling me you're going to give this thing away. It's going to cost massive dollars and you're just going to try to make up by advertising. But the reality is you have a business model in advertising that scales with your cost structure. So if somebody spends an hour of time online, I'm generating an hour of revenue through advertising. If you compare that to a traditional ISP, even today, like you know your, your cable companies or whoever, they're charging you typically a flat fee for access. Their costs vary based on how many people use it and how much they use it, right? So they've got this fixed revenue against this variable cost. So that made our model really powerful, and we had over 90% gross margins. So it was, a, it was a very profitable business. You know, this is fascinating because I remember using net zero when I was a teenager. I can't believe all that was happening without me even realizing it. On one hand, I feel kind of deceived, but on the other hand, I guess I'm also thankful. I mean, that was one of the earliest ways I was able to get connected to the internet because I had trouble convincing my parents to pay for dial-up. Without net zero... I don't know if I'd be where I am today. That's really cool. That's really cool. I've heard a lot of stories like that. I mean, there's a lot of people who got their first experience in this year, which is really neat for me just to be able to know that, hey, listen, we, we contributed an, an interesting piece to uh, to the history of getting people online. I think at one point we had registered just like 15 million users. So it was, it was quite a few people who found their way to the internet through NetZero. So here's the thing about a company like NetZero. On one hand, it's a company that gave millions of people like me our first exposure to the internet in the World Wide Web. Simply put, if it wasn't for NetZero, I may not have had the career I've had. And surely, among its millions of users, there are plenty of other people just like me. We got our start on the web thanks to Ron Burr and his crazy idea to give people free internet in exchange for letting him advertise to us. But of course, that simplifies the trade-off that was happening. Remember, as Ron told us, NetZero went from 4.5 million in revenue to 550 million in revenue in five years. They were clearly really good at advertising. And in order for a company like NetZero to be so effective at advertising, the technology wasn't just showing random ads. It was carefully looking at everything people like me were doing online and selling that info to advertisers so we could be explicitly targeted. In other words, Net Zero set a precedent for how online value exchanges would work that the world continues grappling with today. I look back on it and I think, yeah, I'm not happy with where things have gone as a consumer and just a, a citizen and user of the internet. 
it was the value exchange was like, hey, listen, you come on to our service. We're going to track everything you do. And we did. We tracked everywhere you went, everything you did. And we built an anonymous profile. And we really, truly did anonymize the profile. We didn't just say it. We did it. But yeah, we tracked that. And that's how we targeted the advertising. So um, it was definitely the beginning of that whole kind of pervasive internet knowing everything you're doing, (laughs) which probably, you know, it's a trade that I think has to be managed very carefully. There's a huge responsibility that goes with it and it can be abused and has been abused as we've seen. This brings us to the big question we have to ask ourselves, not just about net zero, but also Google and Facebook and really any other online service that gives us access in exchange for our data. A lot of people want to argue that digital privacy is a fundamental right for everyone on the web, and I don't disagree, but what about digital access? Is that a fundamental right too? If so, as Ron just explained, it costs lots of money to give people access to the internet. It also costs lots of money to let people search the web, and it costs lots of money to provide social networks where people can interact with their friends and family. The companies that provide those services have to be able to pay their bills. Either they need to charge us a subscription fee, which would restrict access, or we have to give them something valuable in exchange for letting us use their services. And the one universal thing every person on the planet can give is access to our user data. While it infringes on our right to online privacy, it simultaneously supports equal access. That seems important too. So maybe the question we need to be asking ourselves is which fundamental right do we value more, access or privacy? What do you think? Tell you what, you can let us know by reaching out. We're at Webmasters Pod on Twitter. And hey, I'm on Twitter too, at Aaron Dinan. That's A-A-R-O-N-D-I-N-I-N. Be sure to send us a message and let us know what you think. I'd like to thank Ron Burr for spending the time to share his story in the story of Net Zero. If you'd like to see what he's up to these days, you can find him on Twitter. He's at Ron Burr. I also want to thank our sound engineer, Ryan Higgs, for helping pull together this episode. And I want to thank our sponsor, Latonas, for all their support. Remember, if you're interested in buying or selling an internet business, be sure to head over to latonas.com. You can support this podcast too. It's easy. Just be sure you're subscribed on your podcasting app of choice. Leave us a five-star review and share it with a friend. If you do those things, you'll be all set for our next episode with another amazing internet entrepreneur that's coming soon, I promise. But until then, well, it's time for me to sign off. Goodbye.